Psalm 15. And even as we read this, I want you to keep in mind Psalm 14. Uh, for some of you, it might be more difficult because you might not have been here last week. Uh, but Psalm 14 was really about the, the prevalence of sin amongst humanity. Um, it's one of the, the uh, proof texts, so to speak, for what we call radical depravity. Um, and uh, this is, a, in a sense, a contrast to that. In the midst of Psalm uh, 14, it talked about the faithful community, God's people, and uh, that's really what uh, this particular uh, psalm is about. So, anyway, Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father, indeed, teach us your way, that we might walk in truth, purify our hearts, Unite them in wholeheartedness, that we might have a godly fear of you, trusting you and receiving your word even this morning. And we ask this through Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. My first real job, aside from uh, mowing lawns and shoveling snow and delivering papers when I was a a teenager, uh, was at Montgomery Ward. Yeah, yay. There's a, there's a lot of places I used to work for that don't exist anymore. I'm not sure if I'm the problem. <laughs> okay, it closed long after I left, don't worry. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I was a uh, junior in high school, had just recently gotten my license, and uh, it was a new experience for me. And part of that new experience uh, came when finally, after... I guess I'd been there well over a month, if not a couple of months. Uh, One of the ladies, young ladies that I worked with, another uh, student who was a senior in high school at that point, said, hey, you know what, after work, uh, some people are coming to my house, so we're going to watch a movie and and hang out together. And so, you know, do you want to come? Sure. I hadn't thought much about that. It's like, oh, this is a new benefit of work, I guess. A a new social uh, context and new relationships uh, that can start to emerge. And so uh, I began to be part of the in-crowd at work uh, amongst those who would go out on Friday and Saturday night. Uh, This was not of a benefit to my soul, I will confess, but it happened nonetheless. And it points to the fact that we all long to be part of a crowd. We all long to be part of a community. It's true in school. 
For those of you who went to school and weren't homeschooled, there's always sort of the people who are in and then the people who are out. And uh, there's a couple of different in-groups, and you would try to be in one of the groups that was sort of in. You didn't want to be sort of me. I was the guy who didn't fit. You know, uh, I was smart, but I wasn't a brain. You know, uh, I was semi-athletic, but certainly not a jock. Uh, you know, cars were nice, but working on them, not my kind of thing. So I wasn't a gearhead. And so there were all of these groups. And so where did I fit? We all have that sense, okay? Maybe not as profound as I did. Where do I fit? There's this longing that we have for community. That's part of what made the show Friends, I think, so successful. Uh, I really didn't like that show. Uh, I had moral reasons for not liking that show that you may or may not share with me. Um, But I think it connected with uh, the longing for community just the same way that earlier the, the show Cheers had really connected with people. Big idea in this psalm, I believe, is that God suits us for fellowship with him. And I'm going to look at it this way, uh, the cry, the answer, and uh, I can't remember what the other part was. Oh, yeah, the promise, the cry, the answer, and the promise that we see within the context of this psalm. And the cry is very easy. It's, psalm one, uh, it's, it's verse 1, and we see it sort of repeated in two slightly different ways. But this, the cry is essentially, can I dwell with a holy God? That's a problem in some ways, this idea of a holy God. But the cry of the psalmist, David, as well as our cry, assumes that God will have fellowship with some people, but he might not have fellowship with everybody, that there are some with whom he will not have fellowship. And so this is the cry of the person who wants to be in the in-crowd with God. What will it take Who do I have to be? What do I have to do to sort of get in with God? Because there's a problem that exists here. This recognizes first, on the first hand, His love. It recognizes that there are people that God wants to have in His company, who He wants to have fellowship with, and so uh, because His love overflows. And so this recognizes, I think, the love of God, but this also recognizes the holiness of God. Both of these things are true. And the holiness of God, as we see, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the worship service, as Isaiah saw God as, as he is upon the throne, and he heard the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah didn't say, Isn't it great I get to be here? But Isaiah said, Woe unto me, for I am undone, because he was a sinner in the presence of the holy God. And so this psalm kind of recognizes both of these things. That that God's love means he wants people in his presence, but his holiness means something else. (laughs) That holy people are to be in his presence. Now, there is a universal temptation, or shall I perhaps say a temptation towards universalism. The idea that everybody has fellowship with God, even though they might call him by a different name. 
we see this kind of unfolding, if you watch the news at all, uh, on Wheaton and their college campus. Because uh, one professor uh, said that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And there's a lot of people who don't like the stance of Wheaton in approaching this. There are many alumni of Wheaton who are concerned because the the administration has said no to that. The administration has said we don't worship the same God. There's a temptation to bring everybody in, to ignore the, the significant differences And if we're going to be biblical, we recognize that those who reject the Son reject the Father. So we cannot have this sort of understanding of, well, we all worship the same God. Because if your God is a repudiation of Jesus Christ, we're talking about different gods. And let's just be honest about that. So, there's that temptation that exists. But there is this hope This hope that was born in the garden as God had fellowship with Adam and Eve. This hope of fellowship seemed to die with their expulsion after their disobedience. But we see that God graciously seeks true worshipers. And remember, we were, we still have to finish John's gospel, but think back for those who were here. John chapter four. Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she he tells her that God seeks true worshipers, and it's not about which mountain you worship. It's about who you worship, and it's about the integrity with which you worship. That we might that he seeks people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, in addition to there being God's love and God's holiness, we might see there is God's mercy. He continues to seek true worshipers. David first starts with, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Sojourn has that idea of um, temporary residence, but also the idea of having left the place where you lived to be somewhere else. The sojourner. Who can sojourn in your tent? Referring to the tabernacle that Moses had built so that God could dwell among his people. Remember back in the wilderness period, after the exodus, but before they get in the promised land, they're moving around in tents, and so if God is going to dwell with them, he must live in a tent, so to speak. There must be a tent to, for which he can meet with them, and that's why it was called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. But let's not think that this was Moses' idea. It was, of course, God's idea because he wanted to dwell with his people. And so we can almost have the sense of Mr. Rogers going, who will be my neighbor? Okay, Because he wants the Israelites to surround him as his neighbor. God's idea. Not a God far away, but one who dwells among them. And although there's no earthly tabernacle, we see that in John's gospel, the very first chapter, he picks up on that idea of the tabernacle in verse 14 when he says, and the word became flesh, and you could translate it tabernacled 
among us because his physical presence in this world was not permanent. It was temporary. But he dwelt among his people. And so the greatest fulfillment of this idea is not us going to God, but God coming to us. David, wanting the tabernacle to be near him, brought the tent to Jerusalem, which is often called the Holy Hill. And it was there to dwell, so to speak, permanently. David had a desire to build a temple uh, for the Ark of the Covenant, which was what the tent of of meeting held within it. It, You know, there's the altar on the outside, and there's the lamps. But the main point of it was the altar, sorry, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, His mercy seat, where His footstool. And so David wanted to build a temple so that it would never, so to speak, leave the region, never leave the place. And it was Solomon who eventually built this temple on the holy hill that was Jerusalem to dwell loosely, from our perspective, permanently. There's a reason why we read from Revelation 21. Because that talks about the permanent, 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 permanent place of God amongst his people the one he will never leave nor forsake um, because of our sin, as he had the temple in Jerusalem. This leads us to that cry that, that, that David repeats, Who? Who shall dwell? Who shall sojourn? And this could lead us in two, one of two different ways. Is he looking for individual names? Like, you know, can you show me the guest list? All right. Or... Is he talking about what type of person gets to dwell with you? And this thing, I think, leads us to the Canaanite temptation that the Israelites were prone to experience. And sometimes we can be prone to experience that, which is focused on ritual. That the person who is able to sojourn in God's tent is the one who's been ritually purified, who's done the right things. You're welcome if you do the right rituals. That was the temptation that the Israelites began to experience as they began to incorporate more uh, of the um, notions of the religions around them. And so it became about as long as we do the right things in worship, God accepts us. As long as we show up, you know, at the appointed hours, you know, as long as we show up to church, so to speak, to put it in our vernacular, as long as we, you know, kneel when we're supposed to kneel, stand when we're supposed to stand, pray when we're supposed to pray, that somehow this is it. And that's not what God had in mind. Made in the image of God, there is a longing in each of us to belong, to be, be part of the friends of God. And so what's the answer? The answer to the question of David is those who are blameless before God and man. No names are provided. There's no list of the citizens of the city that's provided at this point, although there is a Lamb's Book of Life, but we don't get to see the names. Okay? Rituals are not listed either. He doesn't say, well, you know, those who are baptized as infants or at their conversion and those who partake of this and do that. That's not the answer either. 
The answer boils down to that of character. Not a question of race, because sometimes we include and exclude on the basis of race. It's not on the basis of social class or standing, where people are in or out because of where they stand on the social, socioeconomic scale. You know, country clubs. Who goes to a country club? Rich people. If you don't have the money to pay, you don't get in. You could work there. <laughs> I could work at a country club, but I can't belong to one. Okay? And so we as people can often uh, put people in or out based on, on any number of conditions. God's conditions are not the same as our conditions. It is about character. It is about holiness. And he lists out this, it's a representative list. It's different than the list we heard about in Psalm 24. It's different than the list we read about, if for those of you in community group, in Isaiah 33. All of those reflect the reality of the Ten Commandments, and yet they reflect different aspects of them. They're meant to be representative, not exhaustive. It's not like you can use this as a complete checklist. If I get all of these down, I'm good. Okay, that's not the idea that is going on here. It starts with the idea of him or her who walks blamelessly. That there is an integrity, there is a wholeheartedness in one's lifestyle, a consistency perhaps, where faith and life match up. Well, there's not a a whole lot of dissonance between what the person says and what the person does. That's part of the idea of blameless. Not in the sense of he talks like trash and acts like trash, (laughs) but he talks well and lives well. That kind of consistency, a blameless kind of consistency. This is further explained by who does what is right or righteous. And so there's not just an avoidance of sinful actions or practices, but there's also the active doing of righteousness, of doing things that are good. So it's not just an avoidance of evil, but a practice of that which is right, doing the right thing for others. So this is why Tremper Longman notes that the blameless do the right thing and act morally. But what does it look like? Those are sort of vague terms for us. What is blamelessness and righteousness? What do they look like in real people? And so he explains a few things. Now some commentators take all of these. There's ten things that are noted overall, including blamelessness and righteousness. And some take this as a sort of like a version of the Ten Commandments itself. But I see contrasts in some of these things as some explain others. So... Let's go with it. He speaks, or this person speaks the truth in or from his heart. This integrity, this blamelessness is revealed in thoughts and words. Okay? So it's, it, this person is focused on the truth. The, 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 these ideas that they have in their heart are um, shaped by 
the reliability of God's Word. And this person doesn't just speak them to his heart or in his heart, but he speaks from the heart as well. This person means what they say. When they tell you something, you can rely upon their word. That what they're saying is rooted in what they really think and really believe. Haven't you ever met those, one of those persons who you're really not sure you can trust what they say? That they're being honest with you about what they, they say? That they're thinking one thing in their head and saying something else with their mouth? Okay? Or they use words that are in a very, uh, um, in a way that gives them plausible deniability. Here's a temptation as a pastor to do that all the time. I'll confess to you right now. There's a temptation to say what you think people want to hear as opposed to what they really need to hear. Because pastors also experience the temptation to the fear of man. So, their words match their thoughts. Therefore, their words are reliable. Here's the contrast. I said the contrast. Does not slander with his tongue. And so this person who speaks the truth from his heart also rejects lies which are intended to destroy other people. And that's one of the things about righteousness that uh, Bruce Waltke brings up in his commentary on Proverbs, which he refers to in his sermon on Psalm 15, that the righteous man disadvantages himself for the advancement of others. The unrighteous man disadvantages others for his own advancement. And so to slander another really is about disadvantaging them so that you can get ahead. There's usually some reason why you slander another person, why you destroy them in the sight of others, why you bear false testimony against them, and that is so that you can get farther ahead. Whether you can get that job or that promotion because you've talked bad about Joe or because you can get this friendship or relationship that you want to have and so you speak poorly about the other person. A person who dwells with God doesn't do that. Forsakes that temptation. He does no evil to his neighbor which I think matches up with does what is right. He he avoids injustice. He does not enslave his neighbor, does not betray his neighbor, does not steal from his neighbor, does not cheat his neighbor. Nor does this person take up a reproach. While blameless, he is also not looking to find blame in other people for his advantage. Just as I'm not supposed to slander someone else, you know, I'm not supposed to talk bad about Eric, okay, so that I can get something that Eric and I both want. I'm also not supposed to speak ugly truth about Eric. 
to make him look less in someone else's eyes. Because that reflects bitterness and pride in my heart. It's driven by that. Proverbs 10, for instance, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And so, this love means that when my neighbor wrongs me, I don't try to destroy him. I try to be reconciled. And that's important. Now we get to another hard part. In relationships, we side with God's perspective about people. And what it says here can sound very harsh, at least at first. The vile person whom we are to despise is not simply an unbeliever, but the the idea here would be that of a notorious and unrepentant sinner. Okay. Think of the worst people you could possibly know. (laughs) And thinking, you don't want to partake in their sin with them. That's the idea. But honors those who fear the Lord. And this is tough too, because I know some people who fear the Lord, but their lives or their decisions are very different than mine. But we need to honor them when they do what's right. We need to say, yeah, they're part of my in crowd, not my out crowd. And now comes even harder stuff. He or she keeps their promises even when it hurts to do so. That phrase, he swears to his own hurt, and that means swearing an oath, not banging your thumb and letting loose a stream of profanities. Okay? So, this person swears an oath, makes a promise, keeps his word, even if it's costly. Now, there are places like number six that remind us that there's a time frame in which you can get out of an oath. And there are particular reasons why you can get out. And there are times when you can ask someone, I know I promised this, but I now see how dangerous this would be. Can I get out of this? But you recognize they have the right to say, no, I want you to keep your word. So the the keeping is not absolute. There are opportunities that are given uh, in, in God's graciousness to get out of some of these things. But when it comes down to it, You keep your word. I don't know how long ago I told you, I mentioned a story, I think, about this verse, about how it cost me a girlfriend, but I didn't go into more detail. And Kit wondered, I want to hear the rest of that story. Well, Kit, here you go. (laughs) Girlfriend number four and I, okay, now Amy's going to look at her list. Who's this I'm talking about? Number four and I were both volunteers with the youth group. 
and we were talking about getting married, and uh, she wanted, as a result, to uh, to go visit her family in upstate New York um, on a long weekend. And meanwhile, there was a fundraiser, a car wash fundraiser, that um, I had agreed to participate in as a youth leader, and I had already begun to take donations, you know, how many cars we washed, you know, pennies per car. I'd already begun that process. Well, guess what happened? The date of the car wash changed. Which promise do I keep? And so I, as I talked with girlfriend number four, I said, I can't change the car wash. I can change the weekend we visit your parents. I want to visit your parents, but I can't do it that weekend. And for her it was, that's a long weekend. That's a better weekend. I don't care that the car wash changed. And so it put me in that position where I had to choose which promise I would keep to my own hurt. And apparently I chose poorly. Or I chose well, depending on your perspective in this matter. Amy, I think, would say, Steve chose well. Love you, honey. Okay. But she went away for a weekend and came back and said, it's over. Not only that, but we see this idea here in in, uh, the last couple of verses. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. How we gain money and how we use money matters to God. He's concerned about this. And so we see that this person is generous. He puts out his money. Okay, let's not overlook this. He puts out the money, but he does not put it out with a bite in it. Usury. Excessive interest. The Israelites were forbidden to lend out money at interest to their brother Israelites. You know, they they could charge interest to those guys outside the kingdom, but not the people within the kingdom. Okay? In other words, they were not to take advantage of the need of their brother by charging them interest. They were to lend generously, knowing that they ultimately were lending to the Lord, as it says in Proverbs. And so they were to be generous with one another as they had need. But not only that, they were to not receive bribes that would, or give bribes that would distort justice so that it's not about the facts of a case, but it's really about who enriched me. When justice becomes a matter of who has the most money and shares it as opposed to what is true, what is right. And these are reflections of what we see in Deuteronomy 23, for instance. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. And in Exodus 23, And you shall take no bribes, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Cases were to be 
held, uh, ruled on by their merits, not the money. And so if we're honest about this section here, we recognize that God has fellowship with people, reflecting his character in thoughts, in words, and in deeds. Okay. Let's look at the promise. The promise ultimately is Christ is our only hope for fellowship with God. You see, David here does lay out a promise, and he doesn't mention Jesus in it, but he does say, he who does these things shall never be moved or shaken, which we, that's the verb we saw in Psalm 13. Okay? Uh, the one who is toppling, who's about to fall, sort of like Humpty Dumpty off the wall. Okay? We're reminded of Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them or puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the storms are going to come and the house is going to stand. The foolish man, his house is going to be wiped away. Okay? Without this quality of life, people are shaken and destroyed by hard times. With this manner of life, people remain with God in the midst of those afflictions. Now, this causes me to think. Hopefully it causes you to think. There are two fundamental ways we could look at this promise and everything that precedes it in this psalm. Two ways. We could look, this, look at this as a reflection of the covenant of works or as a reflection of the covenant of grace. Okay? If we look at this in terms of the covenant of works, we say, we must do before God lets us in. We must fulfill all these qualifications or we are not going to get in. Okay. What's the problem? Psalm 14. There's no one who does good, not even one. There's no one who seeks after God. If we want to look at this psalm from the perspective of the covenant of works, we are all in very big trouble. All of us. Because we failed. The second option is to look at this in terms of the covenant of grace, and that means that Jesus fulfills the covenant of works for us, gives us his righteousness, gives us his obedience, and brings us into God's presence. And that, and this list is also how we live in his presence. And so it's seen in light of places like Exodus 20, the the giving of the Ten Commandments, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. Grace, redemption. You got distracted. Um, Okay? And so the Ten Commandments are given not as a way to earn one's salvation, but they're given to people who have already been redeemed by the Lord how they're supposed to reflect his character. Okay? And so if we think of it in that sense, it makes a whole lot more sense. 
Jesus fulfills the covenant works for us to qualify us, justification, okay? But we see that even for the Israelites, the ceremonial law existed precisely because they were sinners and they needed to be restored to God's fellowship. And so that's why they have these animals that they slaughtered. Because they were guilty and needed to be brought back into fellowship. It was the provision that was made, a provision that pointed to Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so we recognize that the psalmist is saying something similar to, I think, what John says in the second chapter of his first gospel, uh, first letter. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, he's saying, I don't want you to sin. I want you to walk in the truth. I want you to walk in the light. I want you to be like Jesus. But if anyone does sin... Not, you've lost all hope, but rather, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. So hope is not lost when we err. Hope is not lost when we sin, but we're able to return to God because of our advocate, our paraclete, Jesus, who is righteous. He continues to pardon us. But also we see that Jesus works in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to put away the sin that we love so much, this idea of sanctification. And so we see these two things kind of played out in a number of ways in Scripture. I'm going to mention two, ver- two passages. One is 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That sounds a lot like what we just read about in Revelation 21. Outside are all the unclean people, right? Okay? The unclean people, and he has a long list that, that Paul mentions. He says those people will not inherit the kingdom of God, but verse 11 is what I want to focus on. And such were some of you. Some of you Corinthians used to do those things. But you were washed. You were sanctified or set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so they've been forgiven, but they're also called to leave that life. We see a similar thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which the men looked at uh, two Thursdays ago. But the Lord's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Okay? He knows who belongs to Him. He knows who has, uh, who has the privilege of His presence. And a second seal, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. A call to leave the life of sin because we name the name of Jesus. So, hope that wraps it up for you. (laughs) Hope that is understandable for you. But these questions begin to emerge. Has Jesus changed you? Have you 
Look to him for your justification. Have you seen that your meager attempts at obedience are just don't meet the standard? And you need his obedience to rescue you. Not to supplement, but to take the place of. To be the sole qualification for your entrance into God's presence. What does he still need to change in you? Where are those places that you need to cry out to him, change me, not I will make myself better, but change me. Look to him for these things. This is not about cleaning yourself up, but it is more about being cleaned up by him. Well, a few years later, after I started living the party life at Montgomery Ward in the evenings. I asked my friend why she invited me that night to her house, and she was honest. I didn't think you'd say yes. Interesting. <laughs> God's offer is sincere. He, he does not offer it hoping you say no. It's a sincere offer because he sent his son to seek true worshipers. And the father accepts these worshipers on the basis of Christ's righteousness given to them. Have you received Christ as the only way to the father, as your own righteousness? But again, this is not all. His goal is to make us like Jesus, turning away from sin and towards righteousness. Are you submitting to him? Are you wanting to be like him? Are you asking him to change you, not vaguely, but in particular ways where you know you don't, you're not like him? We need to pray. Father, not an easy word, even though we see Jesus in all of this. Even though he is our only hope, it still can bite us because it means um, it's all on your terms, not ours. It's all on your power, your righteousness, your goodness, your love, your patience, your mercy, not ours. And we so want to earn our way in. Have mercy on us. As we read this, help us to see Jesus and to see how much we need Jesus. And that he is more than sufficient for this. And we ask this in his name. Amen.